You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Putz, recording from the middle of the Pacific on the island of Hawaii. And I'm your co-host, Ankit Panda, here in Washington, D.C., but I was in Hawaii last week. So it's good to you know, it's good to be back with you, Katie. Yes, this is the unofficial Hawaii Bureau uh, of, of the Diplomat. But uh, on to the topic of the day. Uh, today, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, an issue that has increasingly come up for discussion, I would say, over the past six months, uh, most intensely. And that's the possibility of South Korea going nuclear. Uh, earlier this year, South Korean President Yoon suggested publicly the possibility that Seoul could develop its own nuclear weapons uh, in the face of the North Korean threat. Uh, there was a Gallup Korea poll in January that showed 76% uh, uh, of South Koreans supporting the idea of arming their country with their own nuclear weapons. Uh, this would, of course, be a huge development and obviously well worth diving into. Uh, so, you know, Ankit, this is not a new discussion, right? So can you tell us a little bit about South Korea's previous flirting with nuclear proliferation uh, and maybe what, what derailed that previous effort? And then we can dive into uh, the hot topic of the day. Sure. So, yeah, I think that's actually a great place to start. This is not the first time a South Korean president has thought about nuclear weapons, although it is the first time since South Korea became a democracy that a president has at least publicly uh, hinted at the possibility of getting um, going nuclear in the future. Uh, so it's, it's certainly a significant moment. Um, but yeah, Katie, I mean, as you alluded to, uh, so during the Cold War, uh, partly as a result of the so-called Nixon doctrine, when the Nixon administration was trying to get uh, U.S. allies to take more responsibility for their defense, and partly just out of concerns about North Korea, and also, you know, the 70s were a pretty different time when it came to the norm of nonproliferation, so to speak. Uh, the nonproliferation treaty had just been put together and was open for signature. Um, but at the time, South Korean dictator Park Chung-hee uh, actually initiated a covert effort to explore if South Korea could build nuclear weapons. Uh, now, at the time, the U.S., which was in a treaty, uh, a treaty alliance with South Korea, just as it is, uh, as it is today, caught wind of this and effectively made putting the South Korean nuclear program back in the box a priority. Uh, and so the U.S. coerced South Korea, really, uh, to stop pursuing nuclear weapons. Um, and that was that. Uh, effectively, the South Koreans entered the um, the nonproliferation treaty. You know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying dr dramatically. There's a, there's a really interesting and rich history to read about this. But the, uh, the point here is that, you know, this is not the first rodeo for South Korea. Uh, and I also want to just, you know, fast forward to Yoon's comments. Uh, they made global headlines. Uh, you're absolutely right, Katie, that there's been a groundswell of public opinion support for the idea of nuclear weapons acquisition in South Korea. But, but I do just want to stress for listeners that, you know, Yoon, uh, when he made this comment, uh, it was sort of in a rambling stream of consciousness sort of exploration of how South Korea might deal with its various security problems, primarily North Korea. And in this sort of very long stream of consciousness, one of the things, one of the clauses that he sort of dropped in is, well, we could also acquire our own nuclear weapons. And this is all to say that this wasn't sort of Yoon sitting down and reading, mm -hmm. you know, from a lectern with a well-thought-out policy decision. Indeed, there is no decision. Yoon has walked back his comments. Um, he went to Davos and he basically said, you know, I'm totally confident in the U.S. extended deterrent. But the bigger picture here is that the boat is rocky, right? Extended deterrence uh, after the Trump administration amid North Korea's growing capabilities uh, is under stress. Uh, there are doubts in South Korea. Uh, and this is really where things stand. I think that's the context we need for this conversation. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm glad that you kind of uh, clarified the, the genesis of Yoon's 
comments. Uh, you know, obviously headlines can are only so long, and and you know people should read the full article, right? Yeah. Uh, but when it when it comes to those comments, it's it sounds sort of like that's in the it's in the kitchen sink of all of the possible options, uh, given sort of the instability in the region. Um, wh what are, I want to go a little bit more into what are the sort of motivating factors behind this increased discussion? Because it's obviously a reflection of the situation on the Korean Peninsula and, and the sort of geopolitical situation more broadly in Asia. And, and I imagine also just the kind of persistent doubts about the extent of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. You know, would the, would the United States uh, extend it for South Korea under what circumstances? And so, you know, tell me more about sort of the, this consideration and why, the, why are we having this discussion now uh, as opposed to two years ago? Yeah, so I think it's a perfect storm of just several factors at play. Uh, the big one, of course, I think, as all of our listeners are well aware, uh, North Korea is a much bigger problem today than it was a few years ago. Uh, every passing year, North Korea has more nuclear weapons, more missiles, better missiles. Uh, so if you're sitting in Seoul, uh, particularly if you're a conservative in Seoul, which uh, the UN administration is a conservative administration, they have a particular theory of engagement with North Korea, which is basically North Korea is an enemy that needs to be deterred by all, all means available. Uh, and there is a strong belief that nuclear weapons are a particularly important component of deterring North Korea. So that's sort of one piece of it. Another piece is many of the core advisors in the UN administration, uh, including his national security advisor and a few others, uh, served in the Im Young-bak administration back in 2010. Uh, and for listeners not familiar with uh, the recent history of the Korean Peninsula, uh, 2008 to 2010 was probably the most serious period of inter-Korean skirmishes and violence uh, in, in the 21st century so far. Uh, and so that was in 2010, the North Koreans sank a South Korean corvette and shelled a South Korean island across the northern limit line. This was in the context of Kim Jong-un's succession at the time. Kim Jong-un wasn't leader yet, but his father, who'd suffered a stroke a few years earlier, was very sick and on his deathbed. So the, the theory goes that Kim Jong-un was sort of establishing his bona fides as a military leader by carrying out these uh, acts of violence against South Korea. But this left a deep impression on many of these advisors who are now back and they're watching what North Korea is doing. They're deeply concerned that as North Korea becomes more confident in its nuclear capabilities, it could start poking and prodding South Korea in ways that are unpleasant. And so nuclear weapons, again, become appealing. The final reason, and I don't think this is the last reason, but this is the final one I'll say right now, is, of course, the experience the alliance went through under the Trump administration. Uh, right? We just have to account for that. Uh, the conservatives were not in charge for, um, for much of the Trump administration, but... Um, the alliance cost-sharing dispute uh, where the administration was effectively asking the South Koreans for a five-fold-plus increase in what they contribute to support the alliance uh, left a bad taste uh, in, in the mouth of many in Seoul. It also, I think, indicates just fundamentally that the U.S. is no longer a reliable ally in the way that it once might have been. But of course, remember that history about Nixon and the Guam doctrine, we've sort of already been there. So this is a this is just the problem of alliance management, right? Fundamentally, the task of extended deterrence is quite difficult. You have to convince your ally that you would be willing to potentially take a nuclear hit yourself to defend them. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do. And given the sort of rocky recent history of the alliance and North Korea's sort of changing threat dynamics, I actually find that on some level unsurprising that South Korea is looking at this option. Uh, you know, I think on an intellectual and just analytical level, uh, given all of these factors that I just described, 
it would be almost unusual for a country with South Korea's resources and capabilities to not at least toy with the idea of nuclear weapons, given, you know, maybe we can talk about all the reasons that this would be a bad idea for Seoul, but I can acknowledge, you know, that threat perceptions are real, they have changed, they're negative, they're concerns about the alliance, and so that's sort of why we see this groundswell of um, support for acquiring nuclear weapons. So, you know, earlier you mentioned that the the first South Korean flirting with the nuclear idea during the Cold War was effectively shelved by the United States. Uh, what was what has been the U.S. response to these discussions, which you describe as unsurprising on, on the one hand, that, that a country would have this conversation with itself about what kind of armaments it needs to defend itself and whether it needs to go down this path? Uh, has there been a similar U.S. reaction to the 70s or has it been uh, different? So, so far, everything is quiet. Uh, So if there have been, let's say, quiet messages, uh, they have been quiet, right? So the U.S. has perhaps told the South Koreans that this is not productive. Uh, But publicly, uh, everything is still kind of, um, you know, hunky-dory. The alliance is on solid foot. Uh, Biden and Yoon uh, and and, and more recently... um, the Secretary of Defense, uh, have all iterated support for the alliance. Uh, and this is partly because um, this is a tough needle for the United, uh, for the U.S. to thread right now. On the one hand, there are concerns about reassurance, uh, but the way to handle those concerns is not to tell the South Koreans that, hey, we're going to sanction you if you go nuclear, because that mm-hmm. just isn't the right way to handle something like this uh, with Seoul. So there's there is movement, um, but we're not at the point where the U.S. has to lay the law down effectively. Uh, I mean, because this isn't a real program. It's not a policy decision that's been made. A- again, as remarkable as it is for a U.S. treaty ally in the post-Cold War era to make a comment like this, um, nothing is actually happening, as far as we know, uh, in South Korea to actually move towards a nuclear capability. Uh, the other component here is that, um, and, you know, this is something that uh, I and other Americans who've been in Seoul recently since the UN administration has, ina- has been inaugurated have noticed in, in talking to Korean analysts who favor um, acquiring nuclear weapons, there's almost a component of hard bargaining here, which is that, you know, there is always sort of this for now added, you know, for now the alliance is working for us and we're confident in the extended deterrent. But if things get, you know, there's sort of this trailing things that's not said, which is if things get worse in the future, then who knows what Seoul will consider. And so this is where we get into sort of some of the nitty gritty and the nuts and bolts of reassurance talks right now. Uh, so this, you know, there are a list, you know, there's a menu of other options here. The South Koreans want more transparency. They want insight into U.S. nuclear operations and plans. Some South Koreans want the U.S. to deploy nuclear weapons on South Korean soil, as the U.S. did between 1958 and 1991. Um, And, you know, there's a whole array of other ideas, uh, dual-capable aircraft and nuclear sharing. Uh, Basically, there's a demand for a nuclear premium right now uh, in in reassurance. Uh, And the U.S. is still pretty uncomfortable about that. Uh, As far as the U.S. is concerned, Many of the capabilities that are off the Korean Peninsula, nuclear capable and conventional, are robust. Many of the conventional capabilities are repeatedly rotated in to demonstrate shows of force and and to reassure Seoul. Um, But this is no longer cutting it uh, in some ways. So it remains to be seen where this is all going to go. But um, there is a broader play here, I think, for South Korea, which is to explore if the United States could um, could, uh, dole out these capabilities potentially. So I, I think before we wrap up, we should return to uh, you know something you mentioned a little bit earlier, 
which is why is this a bad idea? We've laid out sort of why people are tinkering with this idea and why we can can understand a country would consider acquiring nuclear weapons. But you know, what what would be the intention? What it would be the intended effect of acquiring nuclear weapons, and would that actually be achieved by doing so? Uh, not to mention, you know, maybe some of the impacts on the the more general nonproliferation effort. You know, if, if a new country goes nuclear now, what does that say about that larger nonproliferation movement? Sure. Yeah. So I think there's sort of several lines of argument here, and I'll try not to go on too long. But um, <laughs> on the, so I think the one to begin with is actually security, because that's that's really the core of the discussion here. South Korea is concerned about North Korea and wants to deter North Korea uh, and believes that nuclear weapons are a component of doing that, to which I would say, um, I mean, first of all, nuclear weapons do not deter all kinds of things that we might not like to see. Right. That's a lesson that I think uh, India has learned vis-a-vis Pakistan that Mao's China learned vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, that you know the UK learned in the context of the Falklands War, potentially. You can look at the Suez Crisis. You can look at all kinds of times that countries with nuclear weapons find themselves up against adversaries that have nuclear weapons or don't have nuclear weapons, but find their nuclear weapons actually having a very limited deterrent effect. Um, so in the case of the Korean Peninsula, the argument is, well, the North Koreans have nukes, and so we should have nukes to sort of equal the balance. Um, But the problem is then you end up with a situation that's actually somewhat analogous to the South Asian balance at a little, you know, again, uh, painting with broad strokes here. But the broader point being that the North Koreans are going to be more risk acceptant. Uh, They are going to pursue types of conventional and subconventional provocations that will not be effectively deterred with nuclear weapons. Um, And so the question for nuclear weapons then is, you know, in a time of war, are there targets that South Korea could lawfully and in a militarily useful way hold at risk with nuclear weapons? And the answer to that is, well, sure, maybe I can think of a handful, you know, deeply buried command and control sites, for instance. But is that really worth then all of the other non-military costs to going nuclear, right? And here we start getting into the non-proliferation regime, the non-proliferation treaty, the consequences that South Korea would pay with regard to its own civil nuclear energy um, industry. Uh, Just days after Yoon made his remarks, in fact, uh, he flew to the UAE where he was touting South Korean nuclear exports. If South Korea left the NPT to build nuclear weapons, it would no longer be able to service those contracts, uh, contracts, work with those clients, or have access to global civil nuclear technology. Uh, That's just how the bargain in the NPT works, right? You join as a nuclear... Yeah, there is a a withdrawal provision. You can withdraw from the NPT. No country would sign up to a treaty that they couldn't withdraw from. But there's costs associated with that, costs that are actually very important to South Korea, which is a huge net energy importer and relies quite a bit on nuclear power. Uh, And that leaves behind, you know, sort of other normative considerations, uh, proliferation cascade, relations with China, would Japan go nuclear? Um, So there's a range of costs associated here. And I think actually this is one of the reasons, uh, you know, if this debate did get more serious in South Korea, you would probably have conglomerates, the nuclear energy sector, various powerful internal domestic constituencies that would be quite opposed to this idea, given the consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I do want to note here, Katie, is that you know, the, the the Cold War analogy we talked about, the U.S. kind of putting South Korea's nuclear program in the box and, and you know, constraining Seoul, I'm no longer as certain that the U.S. over the long term is going to be as committed to nonproliferation as it traditionally has been, right? We're in this environment now of great power competition, strategic competition. Um, in Washington, I think there is an emphasis right now on geopolitics over nonproliferation broadly, I would say. 
Uh, and so this is also an argument that's made in Seoul, which is, uh, you know, alluding to the India deal, saying that the U.S., if forced to choose between a country as important to U.S. security interests in Northeast Asia as South Korea and, you know, non-proliferation ideals, would probably pick its ally and partner, even if they did something like acquire nuclear weapons. And I would like to think that wouldn't be the case because, you know, the U.S., one of the reasons the U.S. has traditionally opposed its allies going nuclear is um, allies could start nuclear wars that the U.S. would then have to finish. That would be very, you know, detrimental to U.S. security interests. So these considerations are sort of uh, no longer really at the forefront, I think, of the debates happening here in Washington. But um, again, I think, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of complexity to this picture. My bet is still that in the short term, the South Koreans are not going to make this decision. But uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think, one of the issues that we'll be tracking. Uh, you know, there are several concerns about proliferation in the world. You know, Iran is, I think, at the top of that list. But allied proliferation uh, was a problem that the U.S. was very familiar with dealing with during the Cold War. And uh, I, I fear it's, it's coming back. Well, thank you very much to end on that cheerful note, Ankit. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. Be sure to leave us a review wherever it is that you get your podcasts uh, and get in touch with either Ankit or myself if there's anything you'd like to hear us cover. We're always happy to get feedback and ideas. We'll be back soon with more. Thanks for letting me ramble, Katie. <laughs>